Hey y'all, Tiana here, and it's a guest episode. Um, and this guest is somebody that I met, just kind of happened to meet at this uh, book launch thing that we did for this anthology we both had contributed to. And as soon as she started speaking, I was like, okay, this is a bright and shiny person that I need to get to know more about because some people are just that way. You just feel a resonance and it's exciting. Um, So you get to listen (laughs) to our little meet cute story and we get to like vibe about our, um, you know, mutual nervousness for this thing that we did. Um, And then you get to hear Atiyah like drop in and talk all about the way she thinks about like fatness and dieting and all of the things in between. This conversation goes deep. So strap in. It's a good one. And I'll see you on the other side. Well, we're recording now. And I have a guest today. And I'm really excited about this guest. So I think I'm always excited about my guests, but I mean, I like people and I like awesome people. And this is an awesome person. So, hey, guest, who are you? Hi, thank you so much for having me on here today. I'm super excited um, to do this with you. It's my first podcast ever. And um, I guess I should just say that I'm like a, a millennial phony because I've never listened to a podcast in my life. Um, <laughs> so, you know, maybe this will rectify it, right? So um, let me introduce myself. My name is Atia Chowdhury. I guess this is how you do things, right? On a podcast. This is how we do. Um, I am a writer, a poet, a cultural historian, um, a boba tea enthusiast. A dedicated plant mom um, and a person who really writes and dreams about body liberation, fat liberation, and crip love um, in all of its myriad of forms. So I'm really excited to chit chat a little bit with you today about that work. Yes. Like, this introduction that you've given I'm just like oh yes it's so good and it's also like such a millennial thing I'm a plant mom I love it I know I I didn't realize how much I needed green space until Mm. I moved to a city um Mm. where the space was so limited because I grew up in a Floridian suburb and it was always humid and lush and green and my parents were so intentional about cultivating our backyard with you know these huge mango and papaya trees and just fruits from you know their homelands and I got to LA for grad school and I was like oh my gosh like everything's so concrete it's (laughs) and um you know I've got a tiny apartment and the best way that I've felt sort of connected and with my fingers dirty again is just to have like a ton of house plants a ton of like balcony plants and it's just been a really joyful thing I love that I really love that because like so I grew up in Colorado Springs Colorado and excuse me and my mom comes from Guam so like where she comes from it's a tropical island is green everywhere 
And so we grew up with just plants all over the house. Um, and it was like, when I moved out of my house and I went to college, it was so weird to not have something green in my space. And um, it took me years before I actually went and got a plant. And when I finally got a plant, I was like, this is home now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I totally feel you. It, there's something so homey and cozy about it. Yeah. Um, yeah and I, I remember like just resenting my folks for making us basically like plow the land, till the land in our backyard. Um, you know, it's like, oh, why are we always in the backyard? Why are we always like gardening? I hate this. And now I'm in my thirties and I'm like, I just want to feel connected to some dirt and grass right now. Uh, yes. So, so yes, very, very sort of like on brand millennial plant mom here. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But like, I love it. I love it because I, I feel like, like this is where we're going, right? We're trying to go back from the dry ass concrete lives that have been constructed for us. And like, I mean, I'm depending on how you qualify the 1980 children birthed, um, I'm either Gen X or like a geriatric millennial, which I resent. I resent this title. Um, like I'm not, I mean, no, not that I'm like afraid of aging or oldness or anything like that, but like, yo, geriatric, like that's hardcore. I'm 41. Um, let me have some time before I'm geriatric. Like my knees aren't good, but they still work. Like chill out. Um, so yeah, like, you know, it's, it's just a weird place to be because somehow my quote unquote generation is like this pivot point and like, it's just this cascade going this other direction right now, which is just amazing. And so that kind of brings me to the place where when I met you, I was like, this, this conversation has to happen. This conversation has to happen. So <laughs> do you remember how we met? Yes. Um, so we met at a book launch um, party, a virtual book launch party um, for the International Fat Studies Handbook. Um, and we were both, you know, in our little Zoom boxes. Um, me on brand came very late because I'm like, my internet won't connect. Why? Oh, um, so out of breath, sweaty to a Zoom meeting. Um, but we made it and um, I heard your voice and I'm like, she's got a podcast for sure. Like she's <laughs> doing something with that silky voice and I want to hear mm. more from her. Um, so oh it's just like a really, I thought it was a really just joyful event and, you know, such smart, um, funny, compassionate people were a part of it. I'm so glad that we got to connect and we got to like have a longer chat, um, you know, a couple of weeks ago and to yeah. set up this. Yeah. Oh, well, that's, that's like super flattering. Cause like, you know, that's really serendipitous that we were both like, who is this person? I need to know this person. Um, that's awesome. And like, cause I was nervous as hell. I was so nervous. And like, I went second presenting my chapter and 
oh goodness that wasn't ready so I'm glad that I came across as like silky and (laughs) like together definitely definitely so so the thing that turned me on so hard about like your whole situation was that you wrote a chapter for this for this um, handbook called Genealogies of Excess toward a, towards a decolonial fat studies. And I was like, okay, you said one of my favorite buzzwords, which is decolonial. And I'm like, tell me more. I need to know more. Because when you shared your little three minute doobly-doo, I was like, oh, this isn't enough. This is not enough. I need to get all my fingers and all my toes into this work. And um, unfortunately I, <laughs> I didn't finish reading it um, because it was so heavy and it was like there was so much to chew on like you would say you would write something and I would read it and I would go oh dude what have I been doing with my life and like it was it was really deep so for the folks in the audience who have no idea what I'm talking about what I'd like you to do if you would if you would love to grace us with that could you read us like this first little vignette that would be awesome um, sure you know it's it's so interesting because I wrote this piece like two years ago the the academic yeah. publishing process is so so slow grindingly slow. So slow um I mean but intention it's been a pleasure to also sort of write at the slow pace especially when like think pieces are constantly just sort of thrown out there like sometimes mm. you need to digest and mm-hmm. so when you say that it's chewy I'm like I hoped that it's chewy because this is like synthesizing a lot of um, work that I had done um, sort of like building the context in the lit review for my uh, qualifying exams and you know my the you know the lit review for my dissertation and so I'm like um you know it's gonna take some time to to get through it and even for me I'm like ooh, that's that's a lot I went through a lot in this one <laughs> article but I'm like oh it took me like a year to write no wonder I, I can see that I can so. see it. I can feel it when I was reading it I was like this was not a quick piece of anything there's so yeah, much and in so, here you know like the the slow process of publishing versus like slow digestion of information and thinking, I think that really pushes us to sort of reach um, into different ways of sitting and being in our bodies. And that's mm. essentially what this piece is about. So I, I started off um, by titling it on finding the fat body. Yes. Um, and so like imagining what it means to sort of um, be a body of found things as opposed to this whole intact, um, being right that comes into fruition overnight it's actually a a cluster of many intimacies and relations um that Mm. bring us to where we are in any given moment and so um i'll just go ahead and and read the opening um so on finding the fat body i'm leading a discussion section for a course titled peoples and cultures of the americas the professor has assigned Yunote Diaz's novel, The Brief, Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde. My students are usually unusually hesitant, stumbling over their words. The protagonist, Oscar, is fat. Nerdy, ugly, unable to get with the ladies, his fatness is a central metaphor for the destructive, recursive, and generational legacies of colonial and sexual violence explored throughout the novel. Not one person has mentioned the word fat. 
big, fluffy, rotund, obese. They skirt around fat at whatever cost. Their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouths, glued tight by civility, civility and decorum. I can sense how my fat body in the classroom as instructor unsettles them. How can we talk about this obvious metaphor of dysfunctional and racialized fat in the novel when such a body in flesh and bone interrupts the classroom space? Despite thinking through flesh and race throughout the course, we're now struggling to articulate how empire is viscerally embodied in the characters. The complex submerged renderings of fatness and race that press into the novel and our everyday lives tightly bind us shut. Oscar and my body are swallowed whole by the visual and visceral logics of fatness and neither I nor our discussion can move forward until I break open and offer up a piece of myself. My body stiffens. I ask, can we talk about how fat and racial formation, can we talk about fat and racial formation and landedness? What do we think about fatness being made to represent the trauma of 400 years of conquest, rape culture and state violence? I'm unsure of the thickness that hangs between us. If I've exposed too much of my own body and what is at stake and who and what gets left over by internalizing fat as colonial loss and dysfunction against the backdrop of modernity, I feel vulnerable to the scrutiny. Finally, someone pipes up, it's fucked up. I cannot help but erupt into laughter. Isn't it though? Mm. When I first read this, oh, I, I got goosebumps. <laughs> but like when I first read this, I had goosebumps because I was like, this, number one, it's really amazingly well written. And then number two, it names so many experiences I have had trying to teach something about fatness to people who clearly don't have a fat politic. And it's sort of painful to know that you are literally the elephant in the room. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just, I love, I love so much about this. I love so much about this. And it was just, that was such a pleasure to actually hear you read it. Thank you. Thank you. Aw, thank you. That's so sweet. Um, yeah, to that feeling, right? And and what I, what I work through the piece, this piece in particular, um, is, a, is that stiffening, right? That mm -hmm. moment of anticipatory pause um, that you feel, right? When you're uncomfortably grazing against what you know about your own body, what you know about your sense of self versus the projections that are placed on you. And so what happens in that moment, right? You're having this sort of bodily visceral reaction. Um, and I, I talk about this, you know, in, in the sort of like post-colonial, decolonial context, and we do a bunch of academic da-da-das, um, but really what, it, what it's about is like, how do we tune into those vibrations and those frequencies when we can sort of sense, right? Sense something is off or sense something is happening in this moment. Um, and, what it requires is a sort of like to do this work, right? If we're really going to talk about fat um, liberation, if we're going to talk about body liberation and body sovereignty, is to really break open um, and make bare what happens to us um, when we are grazing against this sort of colonial vocabulary around thinness and able bodiedness and um, able mindedness. Um, 
and be vulnerable and honest with people so that they can begin to be vulnerable and honest with themselves. And that's so much of how I imagine my teaching in the classroom um, as a healing practice, because you know, I've, I brought this kind of work into these spaces and it takes a lot of patience and guidance and care um, with the recognition that we all have these tumultuous relationships to our body and to food and eating um, and being in our bodies yeah. in relation to each other, yeah. um, that in order to sort of fix this, we have to be there for one another mm. um, in ways that feel true. You know, and that's hard, really hard. There's always a lot of tears, you know, um, but those are welcomed. Mm. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that it's hard, you know, to to be there for one another and to hold one another in this complexity and this work because I agree it is hard and it shouldn't be mm -hmm. it shouldn't be and that's mm -hmm. like the frustrating part that's that's like where I seat my frustration like it should be so easy for us to hold each other it because it should be that's programmed into us you know like mm -hmm. it's hardwired. It's part of our inherent knowing oh, and understanding and being right. as as animals, you know. Right. But then you know, it's programmed someone, out of us. As someone who studies the sort of like history of eugenics and you know these these sort of core debates about human nature, it always comes up that like human, you know, it's part of human nature to be aggressive or mm -hmm. um, you know competitive. But it's actually like. What about the cooperative nature of human beings, the need for community and for caring for one another and right. like, you know, the sort of like impetus um, to hold each other, right? Like not only in the sort of psychic um, and psychological way, but like physically, we yes. want to hold each other. Like we want to touch one another. We want to be yeah. with one another. The pandemic has really brought that forth. And, you know, and I think that's, part of what my work is trying to understand. It's like the, the fact that it's hard, it's, you know, I don't say that um, things were set up in such a way that it went into a domino effect by some overlord who just wants us to hate our bodies, you know, right. um, the system, right? The system, it, it's, it's, um, it's premeditated and yet not, right? There's so much um, space for a mutation in, um, how we come to know the things we know about diet and um, food and eating and the body um, and just sort of so what I'm what I'm trying to say is that there's there's a way which it's hard it has to be hard um, because our senses have sort of been trained for so long it's not just the the you know our logical side of our brains that are trained to calorie count or diet or to feel disgust and revulsion when we see um, sick, disabled, fat people because they remind us of death and dying um, yeah. and all the things that happen when our bodies fail us, um, which is a whole other bag to unpack in terms of Seriously. what we consider vitality, you know, and, and what we consider a good life. Um, but, you know, it's, it's hard because our senses have been sort of rehearsed in, or we've, we've rehearsed a certain 
um, sensing towards um, these different kinds of body types, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it's been upheld at every single opportunity, every single corner, not only from the sort of institutional um, systemic things, but in our interpersonal relationships as well, um, because that's really where the policing is fundamentally happening yes. for us. I mean, I oftentimes ask people, um, when was the first time you learned about the calorie? Um, who did you learn about it from? Was it a health practitioner, an educator? Was it your parents, um, you know, your guardians, your kin, other children? Um, what did you learn about it? How did it make you feel? Um, and can you think about how you continue to practice a certain relationship to the calorie and food and eating? And regardless of if this person is fat or not, um, there's a story of trauma there, you know? There was a story of, um, you know, a lot of pain and shame and regret um, that I think is just such a mundane occurrence. And it really warrants for us to excavate it. Like, yeah. why, why did this happen? So like, when I say I'm a cultural historian, I'm really, you know, for one of the pieces I, I just um, wrote, um, really thinking about like, well, what is the condition? What are the conditions in which we came to understand the calorie as a logical measurement of, you know, um, you know, energy output and, um, but then also like individual choice, responsibility and citizenship. So mm. Listen, I think I went on a bit of a tangent, but. No, you didn't, you didn't. You, you went where you needed to go and um right here with you <laughs> just you ask this question you know like you know how did you first learn about the calorie and I dropped I was like I don't know actually you know I'm, I'm asking myself when did you first learn and I got a mental picture of like the kitchen in the house that I grew up in and a box of Snackwell's cookies. Mm -hmm. Those garbage, disgusting things. Ugh. Because I don't, I mean, I don't know. These, these are interesting conversations for me because I actually have like large blanks in my memory from childhood. I have like very yeah. strong memories and then I have like nothing. <laughs> and then very yeah. strong memory and and I'm just like the more that I learn about trauma the more I'm like yeah that's what that is that's what that is well wait like normal people remember their childhoods like oh that's cute that's really <laughs> adorable for you I love that for you but yeah yeah I'm just like oh you, you remember all the things huh? with entire blank spots you know <laughs> entire blank spots entire and and it's like you know this is dissociation this is this is like like mental separation from what's going on because it is safer to be in another place mentally than it is to be in your body with what is happening at the moment and it's like oh goodness gracious you know because you also said people are relaying their stories to you about how they learned about the calorie and there's trauma there but you also said it's mundane and this is something that is so frustrating when I start asking people 
about their fat stories. And, and when I ask about a fat story, what I mean is that like every fat body, all of your fat, it has a story. There's a story there. And that's not like, how did you get fat? It's what was your experience of life because you were fat? And like, the stories are so familiar. They're always so familiar. Every person I've asked that question of has their own unique story naturally, but they're all so familiar. And I'm like, this is wrong. It's, it's wrong that we are all having so similar experiences of trauma. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's intense. It's really intense. And I, I think back often um, to when I started doing this work and even before I started doing this work and you know, I've inhabited a fat body for most of my life. I've always been like a chonky kid and like a fat um, teen and now a fat adult. Um, and my experiences have really, or just like my embodiment, folks would just kind of be open about how they feel about their bodies with me, which I think is a really interesting thing because it's like something about a fat femme of color is giving them permission to interrogate their own relationship to their bodies. Um, and maybe not in a super critical way, but to even articulate it, I think is, um, is something, right? I think yeah. it's, it's like a powerful thing. Yeah. Um, and I noticed that, you know, um, especially other women of color um, would talk to me about, you know, um, the sense of criminality that they felt you know, mm. like when they were eating in public, like a sense mm. of shame about eating in public and how they felt uncomfortable um, or unable to do it. Um, or, you know, they'll track in their heads um, in this more innocuous in slash insidious way. Like I ate these good food or these good or bad foods today and I'll have to make up for it later. Yeah. Um, and just sort of like articulating um, this sort of like relationship to food and eating in their bodies that I found that I found like really disheartening and heavy and painful. Um, and so much of the work that I try to do as an academic and as an educator is to allow people a pathway to talk about this in meaningful ways so that they might you know, be able to have a different kind of relationship um, to these things. Like ask, well, why is it that you feel a sense of um, criminal behavior when you're mm -hmm. snacking on something you're not supposed to or when you're eating in the public eye? Um, mm -hmm. When did that begin for you and why did it begin for you? Um, and also to recognize that like, that's not a personal failing. It's not an individual thing that's happened. Like there's actually a, a sort of like um, historical sense in which we've come to understand this. Like I mm -hmm. was reading, um, I'm working on this chapter right now and in, in my diss about um, sort of like vernaculars of fat. And one of the things I'm trying to think about is the carceral logics that appear when women eat, right? Um, when did this begin? How did it happen? Um, and part of this, you know, um, Cesar Lombroso has this really famous penal text called The Criminal Woman. And mm. it's, it's one of these sort of like, um, in, in the field of carceral studies, in the field of, um, you know, uh, penal reform studies, like, it's one of the sort of quintessential 
text, Criminal Woman and the Criminal Man. And he talks about how the criminal woman or the prostitute um, has these excessive rolls of fat, right? She's always sort of like um, fat and stout and darker skinned. And so there's this history there, right? Mm -hmm. This motif, this, um, this feeling that is perpetuated um, on a sort of like larger scale. Um, and we all internalize that, right, for centuries. It's something that our bodies capture and hold on to and learn to sense about ourselves. So like when we say that, so when I hear people say that like, I feel uncomfortable eating while other people are looking or eating in public, it really flags for me like, oh, this is a sense of criminality around eating that women have internalized for centuries. Mm. Like there's a reason for it, you know? Mm. Mm. I'm, hmm, wow. What I love is how you're putting language to things that that I myself teach, but have also experienced. Um, because I had, for years, I had this, this narrative where it's like, if I'm eating in public, I cannot be alone because a fat person eating alone, fat, fat woman eating alone is sad. Like that was the story that I had. And so what I would do is I would order food and I would go eat in my car. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, okay, look, what is sadder? <laughs> Someone sitting in a restaurant comfortably consuming their meal or somebody sitting in their car uncomfortably consuming their meal and like it's just terrible that I was doing this to myself but I was also doing this to myself because like you said there's this criminality and this carcerality around this whole idea this discourse around women and eating and like you know I'm I'm read as feminine and definitely like oh my goodness you know I know that people are judging the fact that I am fat and I am eating how dare I do that in this body? Exactly. Um, Amy Farrell's Fat Shame has a great chapter on, on this and she does a reading of Cesar Lombosa that's really great as well. Um, but yeah, there's it, it's not like it's something that you ever grow out of um, or I, I don't know, I haven't gotten to that point in my life where I've you know somehow ascended um, I just the other day I was picking up um, dinner for me and my partner and, you know, it, it was two servings of food and I went to go pick it up and I was like, oh my God, are they going to think that mm-hmm. I'm the one eating this two servings of food? Um, and I was like, wait, why am I even worried about this? You know, um, why am I even worried? Like, why would they make the assumption that I'm eating this alone and all of this on my own? And even if I were, what's the big deal? Um, and again, it's, it's that uncomfortable grazing, right. Between what you know about yourself versus the assumptions, um, that people have. Um, and I think for so long, I used to believe that it was all in my head. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, because like, Ooh, thinness and white supremacy will try to gaslight you all day long. Talk about it. Talk about it. it's, It's that, um, that pseudo, um, like gentle feminism that's like oh you're not fat you're beautiful you know that kind of thing um and that's like a gaslighting tool because I'm like I know you know I'm fat 
just be honest to yourself and to me I know you have these thoughts about like should she be eating should she be doing these things um and so like part part of what drives me you know um to these like sites of paranoia is like no one's being honest and upfront about yes. these things yes. so they don't surface in ways that we can actually have the necessary confrontation to like move forward in more productive ways right yeah. it's that that civility and decorum bullshit that um, really stops us from having transformative spaces, yes. you know, having transformative conversations. Yeah. Just be honest, you know. Please. I you know, it's it's interesting because like I wonder, I, I wonder about this. Um and I am not a scholar, so I will put that out here first. But what I know is that there's a lot of conversation about nice, you know, be nice. And it's not nice to be honest because honest isn't nice. And, and like, I, I've started to parse out the difference between when people are saying nice but meaning meaning kind exactly and when exactly. they're saying nice and they're meaning acceptable exactly you know and honestly that's part of what i was trying to get at with um the beginning of this this chapter that i just read it's like my students weren't saying fat because they were trying to be nice that's right um you know and there's a difference between niceness and kindness like kindness means standing in your own truth it means yes. like um being vulnerable and having space for people to be vulnerable as well without fear that you'll be cruel without fear that um you know you'll you know we make mistakes but you won't purposefully try to be damaging um yes. and and so you know there's there's this fear that like oh if people are honest and you're just going to get a bunch of trolls where like you're fat, we hate you, die. Um, but even those trolls, I want to just be like, okay, but why are you feeling that way? Where is this anger coming from? Like, why are you having this feeling, this reaction Absolutely. to us existing, Absolutely. to us trying to talk honestly about our experiences of what it feels like to be in these kinds of bodies and even more so to offer you the opportunity to think deeply about this so that you might heal, you know, like even, even the fat phobic trolls were just like, we hate fat people. It's like, okay, but why do you hate fat people? There's, there's a reason. So say it. Right. You know, what did fat people do to you? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so much it's that, that like, oh, it's disgusting. Right. Um, but what do you mean by disgust? What is, what is disgust bringing up for you? Um, how do we catalog and index disgust as, you know, another term for, you know, racial, right? Or mm. gendered mm. or class, right? Like that's, that's part of it. Um, what, are, what are the feelings, the sensations? How are they attached to a longer history? Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's the work for me. Yes. Right that's right. Like, so this is something that I think is really interesting because um, 
who doesn't love a fat baby, right? Like, I mean, who doesn't love a fat baby? Like fat rolls and chunky chunk and squeezy and squishy and soft, Um, all them cheeks, the dimples and things like we love that. But there is a point where that's not okay anymore. You know, there's an age where that's not okay anymore. And this is interesting because you mentioned um, in your opening, you know, where fatness is being made to represent the trauma of 400 years of conquest, rape culture and state violence. Because I think it was Sonali Rishwatar who, or Rishatwar, who brought that kind of connection for me because I had never really made that connection before. But like, it sort of hovers, like you're cute and fat when you're a child, but when you're no longer perceived as a child, now fatness is no longer cute because in our sort of rapey cultures, we sexualize people who are no longer children and no longer children, not because they are, you know, of age and like actually adults, but because we have decided that they are no longer children. And there's research out there that shows that you're a child much longer if you're white and the darker your skin is, the less long you are perceived as a child. So you were talking a bit about that. Not that yeah, specifically. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm super interested in, in the way that you sort of narrated that. Um, but oh, there's so much there. Um, but in particular, what it's talking about in, in a novel, especially because, uh, you know, Diaz, whatever, he's, he's got his, he's dealing with his stuff. Um, but, you know, like, but also, you know, Diaz is, has fallen from grace in terms of the literary circle, but um, yeah, because of there, there's just been like a, a bunch of you know, moments in which women have come forward about his inappropriate behaviors and things like that. So I felt uncomfortable writing about him um, during that Me Too moment or during the Me Too moment when, um, you know, so so much was coming into a reckoning. And I just found it fascinating that he he wrote in an interview um, about this book that Oscar was fat specifically because his body is supposed to represent um, the rape of the land, the rape of his mother, the rape of, um, you know, La Malinche, right? The, the original um, indigenous woman who um, was a part of, you know, was Cortez's um, translator and slash mistress and gave birth to quote unquote, the first mulatto, right? Um, mm. And people often call her La Malinche as this pejorative, right? As this this woman who of uh, the fucked, right? The woman who betrayed her people, her land, um, to be one with the colonizer. And I think there's a, a, a certainly a resurgence in decolonial feminist thought where people are rethinking um, who Malinche is and what she represents. But anyway, so for Yuna Diaz, like Oscar being fat is supposed to represent um, these centuries and centuries of unresolved colonial trauma. 
And so I really think about like, when you move from being a fat child into a fat adult, there's something that's marked on your body as being dysfunctional, Yes. right? Like you haven't properly gone through the cycles or the phases of the human body or the human psyche um, in order to sort of rid yourself of, um, you know, this, this horrible, horrible thing to be fat, um, of the baby fat, right? The baby fat. And there's supposed to be this moment where you've arrived, right? You've shed the fat, you've arrived, you've arrived at your life, you've arrived at your body, um, you're now desirable, you're now mm -hmm. a proper citizen, you're now someone who can properly function in society. And I oftentimes wonder, well, okay, so how did we come to this narrative, mm -hmm. right? That the body um, has to change from one form into the other, um, but then like, why is it so linear, right? right? In the first place, like, why do we not think about bodies as constantly changing um, in their because appearance, in their capacities, like from day to day, you know, from day to day? Um, and how might that change yeah. um, how we perceive what is, you know, seen as desirable or not desirable? Um, but yeah, there's, there's something super interesting about that, that moment between um, the fat child, you know, who's seen as a delight yeah. and the fat um, teenager who's seen as, um, you know, almost, it's always like, oh, you're depressed, you're traumatized, something has happened to encase you in this. You know, Roxane Gay's, um, I don't know if you read her uh, memoir, Hunger. Yes. Um, yeah, that was intense. I yes. it took like two years to finish it because I just kept having to stop. But there's something so fascinating about narrating, um, you know, this this sexual assault as being a catalyst for hiding her body and mm -hmm. you know um, explaining. Right there's there's this there's this desire that we seem to constantly have to explain how we became fat. We need a right. reason for it. Right. Um, and I think that's so, that's so interesting and compelling and painful, but also there's, there's something that I question about that, right? Like, why do we have to name how it came to be, right? Because the whole point of that is just naming it so that we could stop it ever from happening again yes. or to reverse its course. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily what we should strive for. I agree. I agree. I mean, years ago, when I had, when I was still in my dieting journey, searching for that thin woman within, um, all this heavy dose of air quotes there, but um, I, I met a health coach and um, the thing that convinced me to work with her was that she made the connection that I had started getting fat because I was unseen as a child. And mm -hmm. by making myself fat, I was basically trying to be seen. And mm -hmm. I, at that time was like, oh, yes, that's it. That's it. That makes so much sense. You know, the timing, the things that were going on in my life, absolutely. And you know, because I've, I've basically, I've always been big, like, I've always been bigger than other children, but I wasn't really, like, I didn't tip over into, like, 
fat fat until I was about eight years old. And in actuality, I don't think that's completely true. I think I had already been chonky before then, you know, but it was at eight where it became a problem. And it became a problem because my stepfather noticed that I needed to wear a bra. And that's when I viscerally remember being, having my body being commented on by my stepfather. Prior to that, I have no recollection of that, but that was the turning point for that experience. And so I really thought like, yes, this health coach has made this connection for me. That is the answer. Now we just have to fix that, you know? And I was, I was a firm believer in that for so long. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, Virgie Tovar actually had a really negative reaction to Roxanne Gay's hunger, where she was basically saying that, you know, my fat body is not a trauma body, you know, um, because a lot of people took Roxanne Gay's hunger as like, like, this explains it. This is why all y'all are fat. You're all fat because of trauma. And it's like, some of us are, mm-hmm. and some of us are just fat. <laughs> you know? Exactly, exactly. And I think that's why we need more stories, right? Yeah. Um, because people are so quick to take a person's, especially a minoritized person's mm-hmm. um, experience and to extrapolate that as being the entire story for entire everyone. Story. Yes. Um, and yeah, it's like, it's what happens when you're a minoritized subject, you become the sort of cultural ambassador well, for yeah, all of your people. Well, because you're not a person. Die. Because you're not a person, yeah. right? You become, you're a myth, you know, you're you're not fully fleshed out. And yeah. like I said, like that, that, that memoir was true to, is true to her. Absolutely right? it's, true. It's true to her. Um, and that's why we need more writers. We need more stories. We need to elevate um, fat people's crafts. I, I think about this often, like, when I was in organizing spaces in um, Orlando, I was around fat people all the time. You know, fat people were doing the work on the streets. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you think about like, especially fat black women, like they're on the front lines constantly trying to save our lives. Yes. Um, and I don't know if they deserve it, but they're trying, you know? And the thing is like, when I came to academia, um, I noticed that like, I'm literally the only fat person here in any given like seminar or a talk or, and it's very hard to, to sort of reconcile like who's do, doing the work on the ground versus like who's writing these stories in, in academia. Um, and so it, it was just a very sort of like interesting experience. So I'm, I'm very much about like, let's support fat artists. Like let's support mm. fat workers. Like, um, because we are doing we're here like we're here and we're we're doing the work and like let's elevate the craft you know let's like they don't have infrastructure for us of course they don't let's build it ourselves yes we need to build it for each other yes i love that i love that because because you know it calls back to what we were talking about earlier about how we are inherently communal you know and and it it's also talking about something that I find very to be very very true like um I learned this through my own experience my own journey toward body you know toward body liberation is that like when I started 
being able to make space for myself, like have actual compassion for what and who I am, I was able to like extend that outward to any and everybody. Like it was, it just became so simple, like simple, simple. It was so simple. It was just like, yeah, yeah, you're right. I do have a bias against like disabled people. Let's talk about that. Let me, let me, you know, figure out how I can make space for them because, because like making space for them makes more space for me. Like, this is wonderful. Let's do that. Trans people. I didn't know trans people existed before this period of time. Okay, great. Trans people exist. That's great. Let's, let's just make space for them. Make space, big party, all of us, because we're here. Like, the, the human race is an amazing just colorful and diverse just fantastic species you know and it's like we have these artificial systems creating these boxes that say this is good and this is not good and it's like no it's all good it's all so good and it's amazing that it can happen Yes, you know, coalitional spaces, so, so important, right? Um, and just sort of fattening the horizon, making it more abundant. Like, I, I don't believe in this fantasy of austerity, right? Like, oh. we're under these sort of like capitalist models of, you know, there's a scarcity, there's a lack. And it's like, actually, like, mm-hmm. what would it mean to approach um, our politics through abundance, yes. right? Like, there's enough, there can be enough. Like, let's make sure there's enough for everyone as opposed to like fighting for the same slice of, of you know, the same shit pie, you know, like God, I don't yeah. want the shit pie, no. you know, give me something else. Um, and so, you know, when I, when I think about like coalitional politics, making space for other people, um, kindness is also in boundaries, right? In establishing um, your boundaries and allowing people to have their own boundaries, mm-hmm. right? and respecting, respecting those things. Um, they're not mutually exclusive. Like we can be in this together um, to do the difficult work together. And I, I think about um, oftentimes, especially with what it means to like fight for justice or liberation, it means to really examine our internalized um, suppressed feelings and resentment and rage and anger. And I think this happens for a lot of young folks, and I mean young folks in like the movement, you know, I I mean young folks in terms of like people for the first time encountering this language um, Mm -hmm. around racism, ableism, transphobia, homophobia, um, fat phobia, all um, classism, you get angry, right? Like I remember being, you know, in my 18, 19, in my um, classes and learning about injustices for the first time and you just get so angry um, and you're like why did I not learn about this before but why didn't everybody else, like why doesn't anybody else care like there's there's this sense of rage that courses yeah. through you yes. um, and it's righteous rage and righteous anger in a lot of ways but I don't think that people um, get oftentimes are able to sort of like get to this point of um, a qualified rage, you know, where you're like, okay, so I needed to go through this 
phase of anger. It's where the, you know, the, where call out culture kind of, um, that's really, you know, really sticky. Um, because people are angry, I think rightfully so. And they don't have a way to channel that anger into a more productive sense of like, okay, so how do I work on things in myself and versus how do I work on things in the public sphere? Um, because both of those things need to happen at the same time. Um, and, and they, they rarely do. Right. And it's, it's why you have, um, you know, this impossibility in like the unbearable whiteness in, you know, fat spaces or, you know, um, trans exclusionary feminism, like, this is all coming from from the sort of like underdevelopment of rage. I think we need to like really sit with anger as a feeling um, and to explore it um, and to interrogate. Like, again, like, where does it come from? Why are yeah. you feeling it? Um, and like, okay, how do we move forward and, and have confrontations we need to have so that we can get somewhere Absolutely. different? Absolutely. I mean, I really believe that like one of the reasons why we don't get further is because we are not taught critical skills like conflict resolution. Oh, hundred <laughs> percent. We're not taught, we're not taught critical skills like, um, you know, how to feel your feelings in a way that is not destructive. You know, yeah. it's, <laughs> It's just like, these are, these are basic. And everybody has a different story for that. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I, no, you, no, you froze no, for a while. Yeah. I froze. Oh, crap. No. Yeah, no, everybody has a different story for that. And that's what I find so fascinating, right? Because um, people, you know, it's a, a universal thing of like, we're not taught these critical skills and how to feel our feelings. But for me, like I grew up in an, um, Asian immigrant multi-ethnic home mm-hmm. um, you know a, a working class home and for children in this home like you're supposed to be quiet right like you you're you know um, you're supposed to sort of like suppress your feelings because your parents are suppressing their feelings because like they're you know there's this whole history of migration and displacement and militarism and intergenerational like intergenerational trauma intergenerational trauma right that you can't talk about like as a child and so you yeah. internalize it and you stuff it down and you're not allowed to sort of you know um say why or you're not even for me at least I wasn't someone cognizant of like having a feeling as a, mm-hmm. an adult I'm like overwhelmed because I think I'm having a feeling you know (laughs) and so I think that's part of the reason why so much of my work is about feelings affect you know um precisely because there's something about that entanglement about the tamping down of feelings that erupt in these really um violent ways for so many of us um that can actually be traced to that legacy of colonialism and imperialism and nationalism and um, you know diaspora, like migration, like so much of it um, is a part of that story for me, you know. And yeah. um, when I was uh, introducing myself um, at the, the panel that we were, you know, a part of, I I talked about how um, for me the work really began because like my life has been 
sort of scaffolded between these twin valences of the war on terror and the war on obesity. But these two things never spoken of at the same time, like these forms of securitization are never spoken of at the same time. And I'm like, why not? They function in primarily the same way. Um, and they also have these sort of intersecting legacies. So like, yes. let's talk about them, Yes. right? Like let's talk about their function in policing um, the terror of fat and the terrorist body, right? Um, mm. Both of these things kind of, you know, have encompassed my life in such profound ways. Mm. Mm. So yeah, so it's always about something thicker than just individual drama, you know, <laughs> um, family history. It's like, it's the collective. And yeah. that's why, why I think that even folks who don't name themselves as having an eating disorder or disordered relationship to food. It's like, maybe look a little closer, maybe think about it a little more. Um, and yeah. you'll remember certain experiences in your life that you could actually, you know, connect and link to um, these bigger stories, these bigger narratives. Yes. I mean, and that that's calling to this idea that we need more stories because I think the great majority of people who go I don't have an eating disorder because I I've said this myself I don't have an eating disorder I've never had an eating disorder um and in reality why have I never had an eating disorder really because I've never had a diagnosis I've never had access to the system that would have diagnosed me number one and then number two there's a narrative around what an eating disorder looks like. And I've never experienced that because I live in a fat body. You know, I, I, didn't, I didn't have that experience that you see in like, you know, the after school special where like, you know, everybody knows there's something wrong with Laura because she's so skeletally thin and all she does is run, you know? Um, and it's like, well, I didn't have that experience because my body, my life looks very different. And so maybe I have had an eating disorder. I do know for damn sure that my eating has been disordered. My relationship to food has been disordered. And these are things that I'm working, still working after eight years of, you know, being on this journey, I'm still working on untangling and like figuring out my relationship to food. Um, and then I had a kid. Hoo-hoo, hoo-hoo, that takes you right back to the beginning, <laughs> you know? So it's um it's just like when you talk about decolonialization of fat studies, like decolonialization of this whole discourse, this I feel is what you mean. Like let's tell all the stories, not just the stories that are centering the white Eurocentric situation. Like, let's tell all the stories. Exactly, it's, a, it's about proliferating from the peripheries, right? Um, to really just like saturate. I wanna hear all the stories. I yeah. want all of us to be able to tell our own stories. And you know, when you're, when you're talking about um, disordered eating or eating disorders as they appear on the fat body. Like I realized that so much of my dieting throughout my childhood, adolescence, young adulthood, it was praised, right? Like um, as being a 
health. Um, even though um, being on a 500 calorie uh, diet um, is literally a starvation diet, literally. Um, that leads to potential organ failure. But we're like, cool. Good You're for a fat you. Person. Good for you. We need to be things. And so I think a lot of fat folks are hesitant to even openly talk about the fact that they have a dis- eating disorder or, or disordered relationship to food because it's already assumed, right? Again, it's that story that's already pathologizing you from the very beginning. Mm. Um, and it's like, I've had such a tumultuous, unhealthy relationship to food and to eating um, since I was a child. I used to remember um, uh, very viscerally, like when we would go over to friends' houses or relatives' houses, I wouldn't eat at all because I knew that as soon as I ate something, someone was going to comment like, oh, you're eating? It's like, yeah, it's like lunchtime. Everybody's eating. Um, can I live? No, I can't live as a child. No. Um, and so like those things become internalized and then like, you learn to like sneak food and yeah. eat like, um, for me, I was like, oh, I'm going to eat um, in my room and I'm going to yeah. eat like however much until I get full because I know I can't eat in front of other people without them saying things. So like, these are not healthy habits. These are not like quote unquote healthy habits, but they're practices that you do in order to cope with the world around you. And like, even talking about having unhealthy habits, people are like, uh, duh, of course you do. But I'm like, so do you, so do you in your thin fit muscular body. So do you. So like, maybe we can ease up on each other and maybe we can again talk honestly about it um, so that we can have a different relationship to one another, to our eating and food and like maybe move towards a liberatory future for us all. I don't know. Whatever. We'll see what happens. Whatever. It's only a Oh my God. It's only a know, I'm super cash about it. (laughs) I love it. I love it. I think that's a good note for us to stop because we're going to go on. We're just going to keep going on because this is so deep and it touches all the things and we might have to have another part of this conversation because this has been good. Thank you so much for being here today with me, Atia, because delicious. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, and I have one final question for you. I almost forgot. Yeah. So can you tell me how you are living your best fat life? Oh, I am living my best fat life by like um, going on lush picnics under giant eucalyptus trees in Elysian Park, um, having really nice home cooked meals, which I'm almost sick of because I'm really hating <laughs> washing dishes. I'm like, I want my decadent meals, but like, fuck dishes at this point. Um, I'm living my fat life by, oh, really getting into body lotions. Um, There's something about, I, for some reason, my entire life, I'm like, oh, I just need to lotion my face, right? I'm like, no, bro, you got to lotion your whole body. And Mm -hmm. so I've just started like really um, trying out all these body butters and lotions and things. And I'm like, just being able to touch um, my own fat and in these ways and to like rub oils in feels yeah. super um, just relaxing and sensual and just like amazing um, and yeah I'm, I'm reading a lot um, outside of school which is great 
<laughs> pleasure gosh. reading because I've got a library card and um, an e-reader and I'm like oh I'm a reader again how cute that's how I'm living my best fat life decadent meals body mm. lotion and reading okay I want to live your best fat life because that <laughs> just sounds fantastic oh my goodness good god thank you so much for being here this has been a pleasure oh thank you for having me excellent so yeah i really hope that you enjoyed that conversation because (laughs) i had such a great time and i love it when we get deep so go find atia who's out here in these academic streets making a big difference um at her website which is atiachowdery.com a-t-h-i-a-c-h-o-u-d-h-u-r-y.com um and all of that information is going to be in the show notes so come check that out um and uh yeah I hope you really enjoyed that because I know I did and I hope to hear from you. Let me know. What did you see? What did you see? What resonated for you? Like what was good? What, what struck a chord? Let me know because I want to know and I'll talk to you. This has been Tiana living her best fat life. Have a great day. Bye.